is. World religions have starkly different ways in which you get accepted by God. Their view of salvation differs. Buddhists believe in no God. Jews believe in one God. Hindus believe in many gods. And so though our common secular world says all religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing, and though that seems very tolerant, it might first appear that way, it actually is very intolerant because what they are saying is that our beliefs, our distinctives, our doctrine doesn't matter. Oh, it's great that you believe in one God, and oh, it's great that you believe in many gods. It'll all get you up to the top of the mountain. Friends, we should hear that as a slap in the face. What they are saying is, I'm sorry that, that, that you have this belief and, and that you have this belief, but you know, really, I don't believe that matters. And actually, what once appears to be very tolerant is really a very intolerant religious belief. Your beliefs don't matter, and my belief that your beliefs don't matter does. I didn't say that great. Let me quote Tim Keller, who says this better. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions is right. Religions are different. Different religions lead to different places. And what we want to look at this morning is how Jesus is different. Jesus changes everything. And Jesus creates a crisis of faith for all other religions based upon his words and his actions, claiming to be the Son of God and the only way of salvation. So this morning we're going to put our finger on exactly what makes all other religions futile and what makes a relationship with Jesus Christ vital. What makes all other religions futile and what makes a relationship with Jesus Christ vital? Let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 28. Different than what the sermon said, because as I started writing this, I realized that I had about three sermons. So you're only going to get one this morning. I'm trying to grow in that area. The brain can only handle what the seat can endure. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees whom they saw that he was eating uh, with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, key point there, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, just to read it and to hear it. We thank you for the challenges that it will bring to our life. Lord, we want to see you. Give us Christ. May we feast on him and exalt him today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Did you see the religious divide? Did you notice the difference between Christianity and every other religion? Did you hear the tension that is going on between what Christ is doing and the Pharisees? Religion focuses on man's outward appearance, his outward activity, but Christianity focuses on the heart. Religion is about being good enough to be accepted by God, but Christianity is about an inward conversion of grace in which God makes us acceptable to him. Religion is about turning over a new leaf. Christianity is about God giving you a new life. Religion is about man reforming Christianity is about man being reborn, right? Religion is about developing new habits. Christianity is about getting a new heart. And Christ finds himself in this tension here in Mark chapter 2 with those that are ensnared by religion. And first we want to see here that Jesus is doing something different and that he's not corruptible. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. It's how he calls Levi. And by calling Levi to be one of his followers, Jesus would have offended many people. It would have made them think, surely this guy cannot be a man of God and associate with those people. Right? It's like they're saying, how could Jesus ignore all that they're doing? He's in their house feasting with them. We even know that Christ later gets a testimony of being what? A glutton and a drunkard because of who he associates with? It's a flagrant breach of religious separation. We we, we can't go there. We can't be near those people. And they did not like the breadth of his company uh, or the freeness of his grace. There's really two completely different, incompatible religious worldviews colliding here. The Pharisees, they look down on sinners. Christ, he looks out for sinners. He, he, he looks to go to them. The Pharisees spent their time trying to be separate. Their name actually means set apart or to separate. And Jesus spends his time associating with sinners. Jesus is different, and the Pharisees would be the first ones to agree. This man is not teaching the same thing. Christ is doing something different by the people that he associates with. So who is this Jesus? Who are these new people he's associating with? And why does he associate with them? Look at me at verse 17. 
to summarize the story. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see how he uses the terms kind of ironically here? I didn't come to call the righteous. And what does he mean by righteous? Not those that actually are righteous, but those that what? That think that they're righteous. It is those that are self-righteous. And those that he comes to receive are those that he calls sinners, which really just means they're people that they know that they stand in need of a Savior. And he breaks these spiritual words down, righteous, sinner, by using a common word picture of medicine. What does Christ refer to himself as? Those who are well have no need of a physician. He calls himself a doctor. I think we can relate here in our Yankee spirit. New Englanders, when do you go to the doctor? Dead. Never! <laughs> Dead! <laughs> and why? Why do I need to go to the doctor? I'm going to show up there, and the doctor's going to tell me, you're sick. And I'm going to say, I already knew that. Thank you for the co-payment. <laughs> right? But that, you might be going to a doctor, but you're really only looking for advice. And Jesus is precisely turning religion on its head when he says, it is not those that are coming to me who know that I'm a doctor but are only looking for advice on how they can attain salvation and just get a little bit of help. I am looking for those people who say, I am helpless, I need to be healed by a doctor. So if you want to be those that Christ calls to follow me, you have to be willing to put yourself in the category of sinner. He came to change sinners' hearts, not to prop people up. I think that they're already good enough, that already are able to attain some theological precision or some high degree of morality. Friends, there is no hope to those who admit no need. You have to admit, I need healing. You have to admit that you can't will your way into the kingdom. But here's the good news. Christianity is often misunderstood. Christ is often misunderstood about those who he came for and those who receive him. And it is not the religious that flock to Jesus. It are those that are sinners. And he is not corruptible. He already has touched a leper and not gotten leprosy but made him whole. He has already forgiven sin and taken sin upon himself and has conquered sin. He didn't die the victim. He died, as our song said, the victor. Right? The Son of Man lays down his life. No one takes it from him that he might take it back up again. That is our Savior. And if you're ever wondering if you are too bad for Jesus, Levi, the tax collector, says, he saved even me. And so there's a feast going on in heaven, the Bible says, over one sinner who repents. They are feasting. And there's supposed to be a huge comparison here in the next part. While Jesus is feasting, what are the Pharisees doing? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put these same stories in the exact same order, and I think that is remarkable. There might not be a chronological order here where it goes from Matthew to the Sabbath to the Sabbath to the withered hand, but the Bible authors, the gospel writers, they say there is a logical connection. That here is the Son of Man who is feasting while everyone else that is religious is fasting. And Jesus' message is, you forgot to add an E. 
I didn't come to fast right now. I came to feast. And in order to understand this controversy, we need to know a little bit more about all that's going on in the nation. So look with me at verse 18. Now the disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting right after Christ is feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, there is only one fast that is prescribed throughout the whole Old Testament. The whole nation of Israel had to do, and that was the Day of Atonement. That was the only national fast. But the Pharisees also believed in oral tradition, and they added. And so they fasted. Do you remember the the prayer in Luke 18? The prayer between the Pharisee and the tax collector, kind of similar to the tax collector we have here. What does he say in Luke 18? God, I thank you, I am not like other men, right? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. Twice a week. I had a great time in study this week. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah, says this, the second and fifth days of the week, Monday and Thursday, were appointed for public fast because Moses was supposed to have gone up on the mountain for the second table of the law on a Thursday and have to return on a Monday. So because they believed that Moses went up on the mountain to get the law on a Thursday, they fast every Thursday and every Monday. And these Pharisees had religious traditions. They had religious forms. Traditions aren't bad, but traditionalism can kind of get old and crusty, right? And if you're not getting how Christ came to do something new, by flying in the face of all of these religious forms, just imagine if there was a hot new teacher here in America. Some guy that we're all downloading his podcast, we're all watching him on YouTube, we're streaming him live after this service to go home and catch him, we have his books on our coffee table, all the small groups are talking about him, and then we find out he doesn't go to church. It's like religious piety 101. And that's the same thing that's happening here. How can I take you seriously, Jesus? And you don't fast. You're not doing what we do. You're not following the same religious forms that we have. And Christ gives us an answer here in verse 19. The answer is a wedding. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus changes everything. And his message here is, you are supposed to be feasting right now because I bring in a new dispensation. I bring in a new period, a new program. The answer is a wedding. Everyone is happy at a wedding. And it is not time to fast. It is time to feast unless you're the father of the bride. The father of the bride, he's the only one that goes, you know, it would be very economical uh, if we all fasted and mourned over the loss of my daughter. Okay, I mean... Brandon first, kind of an amen, Brandon, yeah, there he is, he, he, he's digging that, yeah, that, that, that's right, okay, there's fasting, only the father, okay, of the bride would feel that way, but for everybody else, it's time of feasting, and Jesus is pointing us here, you have to see this, that the reason why these forms are no longer needed is because of my presence, it is because of who I am. For generations, Israel has longed for the king to come. 
And Christ in Mark chapter 1 says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And how does he usher it in? He ushers it in with bringing healing to the sick, liberating the demon-possessed, cleansing lepers, restoring the handicapped, forgiving sin. And Christ is saying, this exciting time fits as well with fasting as mourning at a wedding, as a new patch on old garments, and as new wine and old wineskins. It's not appropriate time. The bridegroom is here. And so Christ is telling them, there is nothing magical in this religious form that you do. There is nothing virtuous about fasting. He even says here, it's not always even appropriate to fast. You read through the Old Testament. He tells people sometimes, don't fast. Your, your heart's far from me. Don't, don't offer your sacrifices right now. You don't, I'm not going to accept that. So Jesus is letting us know here, it's very dangerous to be wedded to religious forms. Because the form can obscure the person. You can be all about the form and miss the point. And that's why we're doing a series called Jesus Rediscovered. That's why many of you have told me in your counsel about what this church needs is, I've heard people say it, we need to get our eyes on Jesus. I couldn't agree more. But let me just make sure you connect the dots on how that would relate to our church. I think it's a very pertinent message for us right now. How do we get our eyes on Jesus? What does it practically look like that we don't value our religious forms over the person? What this means is our time together on Sunday mornings is not your religion. If this is your religion, you are as separated from God as the Pharisees are. Your religion is what you do the rest of the week. This is a time together to talk, to praise God, to give thanks to Him, to pray, to read His Word, to encourage each other to keep going on in our religion, which is our daily service and worship to God as we go into our callings to which He has given us as paid missionaries, all of us sent out. We have very little time together each week. And so it is this time that we instruct each other in how to worship God in our life during the week. And so the forms that you see here at this church on a Sunday morning aren't the point. If you actually only focus on the forms, you might miss it. Some of us love the forms. Maybe we love the doxology. Maybe we love the the levity that we've had here at times. Others of us go, wow, they're, they're praying more. It's getting longer. The sermons go on. You know, I don't know if I like all these new songs or these old songs. I miss whatever. And the purpose here is that if you focus on the music, the color of carpet, the time of the service, I could go on and on. If you choose a church for any other reason than the word of God and the witness of the people there, you are choosing it for the wrong reasons. We come here so that we can go out and serve in our life. We gather to pray, to listen to him, to encourage, to strategize. This is not the game. Imagine if Bill Belichick spent all of his time evaluating the locker room. There's a game today at 1 o'clock. Guarantee you'll be home before then today. All right? And what if all he did was think about the way the seats should be rearranged in the locker room? 
if the color of the locker room was appropriate, if there were bylaws for behavior within the locker room, and he didn't care at all about how they played in the stadium. He wouldn't be a good coach, would he? This is not the stadium. This is the locker room. This is where we come together so that we can live it out out there. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, living it out here on Sunday and the rest of the week. And it's Christ in me that makes the difference, not me in a different set of circumstances. Let me say that again. It's Christ that makes a difference in me for out there, not me in a different set of circumstances in here. You get that? I come in here, oh, different set of circumstances. I put on my shirt, I put on my tie, I act appropriate, I talk the right thought, I do the right things, I give. That's all about me. Different set of circumstances in here, that's religiosity. Christ makes all the difference in me when I am out there. We want to live the same way. So connecting back to the big picture, we see that Christ is not mixable with all of these religious forms. Actually, I want to give you one more illustration side note. I think I have time today. I want to encourage you with that, church. So life out there, based upon what we can do in here, we strategize in here. I don't know how many years ago, we did a Day of Grace yard sale. Anybody remember that? Day of Grace yard sale? And so here we are. I'm coaching a soccer team. We're in a conversation. My wife is talking to the, to the wife. I'm talking to the husband. I'm zoned in on him, talking to him, just everyday chat. But yet he's listening to what his wife says. Something about, and he has no excuse. And he heard that, and he goes, let me tell you what that's all about. He goes, I'm from Claremont. Went to Calvary Christian School for 11 years, where Rachel's dad, Steve Cook, is the pastor. I don't think he was there at that same time. I was raised in church, is what he said. And he was telling me that his wife said he has no excuse for not going because it's been a part of who he is, his religion, his forms. He even went to a Christian school. And she goes, I know where you guys go to church. The Lord goes, oh, yeah, how do you know? She goes, I went to your church once. Now, as a pastor's wife, you're starting to think through, okay, what did my husband say? What did he do that Sunday? Why aren't you still there? <laughs> right? Guilt, shame, <laughs> all those ideas are, are going through. She goes, I didn't go to church on Sunday. I went to the Day of Grace yard sale. And I still remember that yard sale because I went up to pay, and you guys told me it's free. Everything here is free, just like God's grace is free. She preached the gospel to my wife. So we strategize here, and oftentimes, guys, it lays dead for how many years? How many years since it's been the Day of Grace yard sale? Seven. And here we are through a random connection about her walking into her son's bedroom and he was praying because he had lost his iPad. And she goes, why is your head bowed? And he said, Grandma told me I can always talk to God and God will always help me. She married a guy whose dad is a youth pastor who no longer goes to church because he had been a part of religious forms his entire life and missed the point of Christ. And yet she's thinking about grace because of our church strategizing to go out there. And then Laura and I are living life just like you are out there in the marketplace trying to be intentional. And he tells me that story. I said, so great. What are you going to do about Jesus? Just let's just, I mean, you know it all. All the Bible verses, great. What are you going to do about Jesus? To be continued.
right? I mean, that, that, that's just the way it ended. Saw her the next day at our soccer game. She goes, I prayed again, and God answered our prayer again. And she had found something else in the house. Two prayers, God helped them find. Now, again, it's difficult not to be a genie in the bottle. God just answers prayer. But Laura was able to share how we've been praying for Hudson's belly, Hudson's belly, and that the prayers weren't answered the first time. And she'd been praying for this thing and praying for this thing, and it wasn't answered. And, and her little kid said, well, I guess it doesn't work. She went home and she prayed one more time, and immediately she walked in the door and found it. And then yesterday at the second, she goes, Laura, I prayed again. I just want you to know it, it was right there when I got home. She's doing the math, folks. She's putting it together. And let's see if we can connect the dots, too, back to the big picture. Almost every religion fasts, almost every religion prays, and Jesus is saying, I make all the difference in the world, because why? I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. Now, as good Bible students, how does God talk about Israel throughout the whole Old Testament? As a bride. Hosea, Isaiah, they all talk about God being the groom and Israel being its bride. And Dennis read Isaiah 40 this morning as a fulfillment. Behold, your God is here. John the Baptist gets it. Go over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I know it's warm. I didn't wear a jacket on purpose because we all know it's going to be 90 degrees here pretty soon. John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30, and see how John realizes that Jesus is the bridegroom. John 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 25 through 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, what does he do? Whose sandals, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is saying it is the groom that matters. The audience and you get the form doesn't matter. Is Jesus forbidding fasting? Is he forbidding fasting here? No. Does Christ fast? Matthew chapter 4, he fasts for 40 days. Does he say that there'll never be a time to fast again? The early church fasts and sends out Paul and Barnabas, but let's get a little bit closer of a look. In Mark chapter 2, verse 20, it says here, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will what? They will fast in that day. He isn't forbidding fasting, and this joy that is there now because of the new dispensation, the new program, well, guess what? This joy is not going to go on forever. This kingdom is not going to be ushered in with victory after victory after victory. The bridegroom will be taken away. Now, our ears should perk up, right? The bridegroom taken away? Bridegrooms don't get taken away from wedding. Guests leave. Bridegrooms don't. Well, the idea is picked up from Isaiah 53, 8. Isaiah 53, our great suffering servant passage. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. It's the first hint in Mark of the crucifixion. 
And it's a theme that gets kind of put to the forefront after you get to chapter 8. So let's go to chapter 8, verse 31, Mark 8, 31. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written in the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. On December 10, 1942, Winston Churchill said of the first Allied landings in North Africa, now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. That may well be the case for some of you this morning. We have been looking at who Jesus is. May it be the end of the beginning, the end of religion and the beginning of a relationship. Have you seen the futility of religion and the vitality of a relationship with Christ? If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I just want to encourage you with one application from Mark 2. Don't put a patch on an old problem. New Englanders, we love to patch things up. And there's just times when patching that drywall, Tim Fordesky, that you just ain't going to work, right? You got to get a whole new ceiling. You got to put up a whole new sheet. The unique message of Christianity is this. If you put three swimmers out on the coast of California and you ask them to swim to Hawaii, the first one being an Olympic swimmer might make it 500 miles before she dies. The second pretty good swimmer might swim 25 miles before he dies. Me, a horrible swimmer, like a rock, I might swim a mile before I die. And you might be tempted to think, wow, that Olympic swimmer is 500 times better at swimming than the third one. But the message of the gospel is, who is more dead? Nobody can get to Hawaii on the basis of their own efforts. The unique message of Jesus is that you can't get there on your own, on your own efforts, on your fasting, on your religious observance, on your religious forms, and you can't just get a little bit of help from Jesus. I'm just going to sew a little bit of Jesus onto this already existing cloth. Some of us want a garment patch Jesus. Here's Jesus. Got a little hole in my life. A little Jesus patch on it. I wish I wasn't single. Jesus. I wish I had a little more purpose. Jesus. My marriage is bad, so a little garment of Jesus on it. But this Jesus patch is going to tear away. Jesus says, I am not here to patch up your life. I am here to be your life. Some of us... I've often wrestled with this because I have loved ones, I have relatives, and I love to see them walk in the church doors. I love to see them get even the parenting classes, and I have seen people not stay, and I wonder if it was, I tried Jesus, and it didn't work. 
I tried a little patch of Jesus and it didn't work. And Christ is saying, you can't just add a little bit of me into the already mix. You got to be a disciple and repent and follow me with all of who you are. A patch job won't do it. And there's a lot of people in church that have garment patch Jesuses. And he is here asking for a crisis of your faith. Are you going to sting to the status quo and add a little bit of Jesus? Or are you going to force the issue and be one of his disciples and like Matthew, get up and leave and follow him? If you're here and you're a believer this morning, here's the application for you. Don't put rules around rules for others. If you're an unbeliever, don't patch up a problem with just a little patch. You need a whole new thing. But if you're a believer here this morning, don't put rules around rules for other people. All of those words matter. I don't mind your questions at the door. But the Pharisees are asking this question. Why aren't you doing what we are doing to be spiritual? That's a question. We're fasting, you're not. You're feasting, we're fasting. How could you be spiritual if you're not doing what we're doing? People watch, amen? It's okay. People make comparisons, it's okay. The question is, which one of us is honoring God? And here's what I've seen in my own life. As soon as I get some spiritual growth, because of something that I did, or some type of new thing that I did, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's fasting, whether it's accountability, whatever it is that I have added, I begin to think, you know what? You would grow if you did what I did. And the Bible has commands. I want you to hear me. The Bible has rules. We can't budge on those. Don't misunderstand me. And we should encourage you there. If we see God's commands and someone not living it, we go to the brother in love and we say, hey, this is God's word. What does it say? But at times we put rules around rules for ourselves, and that's a good thing. You put rules around rules for yourself, that's a good thing. For me, I don't have a TV in my house. It really clarified for me a lot of distractions. I will even say this, and I'm sure I'll get some emails this way too, but I think it also eliminated what I would consider soft porn on TV. From the weather person to just nightly news. Just eliminated it. It worked for me. And that's great. I put rules around rules that I don't even want to go there. And so some of us would say, I don't, I don't want to lust. I just say, you know what, I don't want the TV in my house. But I can't say what? You can't have a TV in your house. If you were raised as an alcoholic or you, uh, you have suffered with that, I understand why you say, I'm not going to touch it, I'm not going to get near it, I'm not going to go to any place that even has that. That's great for you. We have the same choice and the same liberty even in the schooling of our children. There are principles about shepherding. There's principles about being salt and light in the world. Those are all good things. I know I'm dancing on some sacred cows. I'm trying delicately. Hear love. Hear further conversation. Okay? But when we say you ought to do it, why do you still have a TV in your home? How people use their time. Here's the last sacred cow in hunting season, right? How you use your time. I can't look at you and say, that's a horrible waste of time. I, I don't have that. It, it, there's preference, there's liberty, because pretty soon we miss the person for the form. Jesus says, I don't care if you get all the small things right, you end up with a small heart like the Grinch. Because you're starting to major on just the forms. 
I did it this way and I got this result, therefore you have to do it this way. And the smaller the form, the smaller you focus on that, the smaller the heart you get, and Christ comes to burst and to give new wine and new wineskins where there is life. It is great if you have those forms. It is great that you practice it, but we have to be careful, church, or we don't put rules around rules for other people. I thought I was going to be bored next week, um, and so I thought I'd just go ahead and throw that application in there. Next week, we have Jeremiah Platt sharing. We have Chip Davis and Lily Seinhauser giving their testimonies with baptism. We have a Sunday night of worship. There is tons of stuff to do. Looking forward to sharing that time with you. Let's pray. God, uh, we come before you now, and we just thank you for that we get a focus on Christ, that you are the bridegroom, that it is your presence that changes everything in our life. We pray that we would not be married to form, but that we would be married to the person of Christ, that we would not have an old religion of traditionalism that is old and crusty, but a vital relationship with you that bursts, that gives life, for us to live it out there with the world that needs to come in contact with who you are. God, we ask that you would empower us now to be your servants and be your witnesses. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.